Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Our theme uh, for the show is to discuss, among other things, uh, Asian American Pacific Islander political power in the city of Chicago. And uh, we have two amazing alder women with us uh, today, 40th word alder woman Lenny Mana Hoppenworth. Give it up. And your 11th Ward Alderwoman, Nicole Lee. You are right now in the 11th Ward, so. Um, Welcome. Are we? Yeah, yes, yeah. we are. No, this is the 11th Ward. Um, you are solidly in 11 here. Okay. And this is an, in- this is an institution. Absolutely. <laughs> And a Korean-American-owned establishment as well, which is a big reason why we wanted to uh, host the show here. So in order to get us started, I would love for both of you to talk a little bit about um, your background, kind of your, where you grew up, and what your relationship was to politics growing up, um, and uh, yeah, how, how you ended up in these seats that you are today. So Nicole, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, Okay. Uh, you want to know about my background? I should make sure I get all these things covered. Um, my relationship to politics, where I yeah. grew up, kind of what I did before, how I got here. You don't have to get as deeply okay. into what your career was before becoming an older person, but give us a little like political bio of yourself sure. and, and, and your Chicago bio. Essentially. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, I'm uh, born and raised Chicagoan. I grew up in Chinatown and Bridgeport, bounced between the two. Um, I went to school in the neighborhood. I went to St. Therese until the third grade. A uh, member of that uh, that parish, um, then went to Mark Sheridan. So I went to magnet schools after that. So Mark Sheridan, go Wildcats! If there's any in the room, and then uh, I was a Whitney Young Dolphin for four years. Um, so CPS kid, uh, very proud uh, of that fact. As are my children right now. So I have two kids, uh, 16 and 14, um, two teenage boys, and they're a handful. So hopefully they don't call and forget that I'm in the middle of like recording a show. Um, I. I grew up in the neighborhood, Chinatown, I think was like, I think if you grew up in any other sort of small town where a lot of people knew each other, my mom was the hairdresser locally and my dad was very involved in the community. 
which was part of how I, I caught the bug to serve. I, I always felt this sort of pull to do to serve uh, and, and to do for others. And I really, I know I got that from my, both of my parents, but um, a lot from my, my dad's modeling that for me with his career. Um, so everybody knew whose kid I was, so I couldn't get into a whole lot of trouble, which was unfortunate and maybe fortunate given where I am now. Um, uh, what else can I tell you? I think. I mean, ahead. I think for for kind of hardcore followers of Chicago politics, they might know um, about uh, your dad being a top aide to former Mayor Richard M. Daley, and I'm just curious to hear a little more about what was the relationship between kind of the 11th Ward Daley kind of political establishment and the Chinatown community when you were growing up. What well, kind, what? How did you see those politics? So, so the you? the 11th Ward. Um, the 11th Ward really wasn't part of Chinatown. So I actually, I live on, before the remap, I lived on the border of 11 and 25. Literally the houses across the street from my house were in the 25th Ward. Um, so it was really sort of tangential, if you will, because there obviously more and more Chinese were, were moving um, into Bridgeport at the time. Um, my father is, is retired from the city. He retired as a deputy chief of staff to Mayor Richard M. Daley. Um, and he led the Mayor's Spe Speaker's Bureau, which essentially made him the mayor's representative out in the community for community events. Uh, my dad has worked in public service in probably 90% of his career. He started out handing out government cheese um, on 18th Street in Pilsen, uh, where the then Department of Human Services was. Um, the literal government the, the cheese? Little, uh, no, because he would bring a brick home every now and then. I mean, you know, that, so I've tried it. It's not bad. Um, yeah, so... The relationship, you know, I, I saw, I would see my dad, here, here's, here's how I will relate this story to you. We didn't, my dad never took us out knocking doors. Like, I meet lots of people these days who have, are generationally very involved in politics. Oh, my dad used to take me to go knock doors. My dad never took me to knock mm -hmm. doors. Um, that was just, his, his political life and his work life were very separate from us. Like, we were involved with his sort of extracurricular and, like, charitable efforts in the community. Uh, with, uh, with the Chicago Dragons Athletic Association, which is something he started 50 years ago out of his love for basketball. He really gave young people in the community uh, a place to, to go for that. But um, he used to pick me up from volleyball practice or a volleyball game, and we'd be driving home, and he would take the longest way home. And I'm like, why do we always have to do this? He took the long way home every time. As, as an alderman now, I, mean, what, I just wanted to get home and watch 90210. Right? That's all I was interested in, and he would go the long way home, but he was going to check the streetlights and to check if the trash was picked up with all the service requests that he was putting in. Because in as much as he worked for the city, uh, he was very much a leader in the community and seen as somebody that could uh, help get things done in the community as a conduit to the city. So really, you know, I have such a great appreciation for that now as an alder person, which if you talk to any alder person, they're going to tell you the same thing. The number of things that you cannot unsee now that you're an alderman, like, oh, that's new graffiti. Oh, that we're going to have to call in. That's another pothole. Or there's a trash can or a branch down someplace. The number of things that you just can't unsee anymore are, are sort of ridiculous. Um, but that was my relationship to the 11th Ward. It really was, it didn't really exist in the way that I think most people think that it did. Mm -hmm. And one more question before we move on to Lenny. Um, were your parents uh, first-generation American, or were they themselves immigrants? Uh, what's your immigration story? One of each. Um, uh, my, so my immigration story, so I'll start on my father's side. My, uh, my great-grandfather came to the United States. He's you know, one of the earlier settlers of Chinatown. Um, from which part of China? From, uh, from, well, from back then, we were all from the same part of China, uh, Guangzhou and Toishan. Uh, was where everybody was from. 
Um, so my great-grandfather was here. He brought my, my, great, uh, my grandfather here as a child to go to school. Um, and when my grandfather was of age, he joined the U.S. Navy, uh, and that's where our citizenship story starts. I, I would not be sitting here but for the, his service to this country, fighting in World War II um, as, a, as a Navy, sh uh, as a, what do they call them? As a sh shipman? Yes. Uh, yes, thank you. I was like, midshipman, that's football. Um, so my father, um, my grandfather and my grandmother had an arranged marriage. My grandmother was still in China. She, he went back to get her. She was pregnant on the way over. He, my dad likes to tell everybody he was imported, but he was born in Chinatown. This, so this was, they lived. came before the Chinese Exclusion Act? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so and my, my dad's just, my dad turned 75 uh, on Sunday. So uh, 1948 mm -hmm. was when he was born here. Uh, my mother's family sort of escaped China, uh, fled China to Hong Kong during the Cultural Revolution. Um, you know, that was not a good place for them. China, staying in China was not good for them. So they moved to, uh, moved to Hong Kong, um, where she spent most of her childhood. And then as a teenager, my great-grandfather on her side was in New York, and then they brought everybody over. So um, that's, I'm, I'm like 1.5, I guess, first, first generation on my mother's side, but really sort of second on, mm -hmm. on my dad's side. Um, so yeah, that's my immigration story. Yeah. Great. Um, and Lenny, would you also talk a little bit about where you come from, where you grew up, what your family background is, and what your, yeah, your relationship to politics and what you saw about politics around yourself when you were growing up? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me here with my colleague, uh, Nicole Lee at Maria's. This is amazing. I never thought I would be sitting here between two incredible people, Maya and Ben. So thank you for having us. We saw work at the Reader together. Yes. For yes. context. Yes. So I, I grew up in a very non-political family. My, my parents immigrated here from the Philippines, from Basau, from the mountains. And um, I was born in South Chicago. South Chicago Community Hospital was the name of the hospital. I was born on 95th and Yates in the 10th Ward. And both of my parents were nurses. Um, they moved to the suburbs, south suburbs. They opened up um, a restaurant. It was a fast food place, so we served egg rolls and hot dogs, and it was great in Manson, Illinois. Um, and, uh, and I'm also um, a small business owner. After we, um, my family and I moved to Andersonville, we opened up a, a little shop, a dance store. I'm a lifelong dancer. When I was um, very young, my parents said that I was um, painfully shy, so they got me into dance. Um, and uh, that was my way to express myself. But um, I opened up a dancewear store, so that's what I do before um, I ran for office, which I never thought I would do. But, you know, what, what happened to me was I was, you know, living my life and raising my three kids. Um, they went to public schools, so did I. Um, we live in Andersonville, which is a very pedestrian-friendly part of Chicago. Um, and, then, and then 2016 happened, the federal elections, and I remember sitting on my couch, you know, watching the returns come in and really seeing the TV turn from blue to red, and I got really upset, and I didn't want to let my kids see me upset, so I went to online, tried to figure out what my friends were doing, and um, it was terrible. I don't, I don't know where you were, but it felt like the whole world just turned a different shade of gray, so... I, I turned that moment into um, 
something that I could do, which is to bring people together and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it turns out it was a lot of the women um, that I knew and then people that I didn't know that got together and formed the Women's March to D.C. So I brought 10,000 people from Illinois to D.C. and back. And then we said, what are we going to do from here? Um, and uh, of course, I live in Andersonville um, in Edgewater. And um, my congressional representative is um, a very progressive person, Jan Schakowsky. And so we knew that we needed to do something. So we turned out the vote for Jan. We also exported a lot of friends to other congressional districts to flip their seats from, from red to blue, like Lauren Underwood and Sean Kasten, um, and we did a lot of phone banking, right? And, um, uh, and here we are today um, in this moment where it is election day, right? Yeah. And so I, I would like to, to acknowledge that. Um, but I, I just continued to go on and on. Uh, I ran for local, um, the LSE at my kid's school at Jones, uh, where there was um, a, a principal which was not you know, in line with my values. So we really pushed on, you know, what is it that we want to see in a very inclusive school, um, working with the other parents, um, talking about what does it mean to be an inclusive school, including those who identify as queer, as, as trans. And um, we pushed on that. And of course, in Andersonville, Edgewater, we have like the highest populations of LGBTQ plus people. And so um, trans rights have been under attack for for, for so long, um, but also in the, in these past years where there have been book bans and um, bomb threats to local small businesses like Women and Children First, you know, you just can't sit back. So we continue to organize, and when um, when Harry, our 48th Ward Alder person, decided to not run for office anymore, there was an opportunity for me to to jump in, which I was encouraged by my friends and family and those who I served on the um, Andersonville Chamber of Commerce that said, why don't you try? And I didn't think that it would be possible. And I also said I wouldn't do it alone. I, I, um, you know, I brought my family together around the dinner table. And um, again, being a very apolitical family, we don't even, you know, I grew up watching the news. I don't know about you, but I grew up in my family, suburban home, watching the news and listening to all the terrible things that were happening in Chicago. Um, Where, which suburbs did you grow up? Where did you grow Matson, up? Illinois. Okay. Matson, Illinois. Um, so, so the thought about me running for office, my family said, why would you want to do that? You're already doing things like registering people to vote and getting people active and phone banking. And, and I said, I wanted to do what I'm doing, but at a level where I can actually pass legislation and good policy. Um, and so my daughter, who's uh, 19 now, she had been working in a um, in restaurant down the street, and she she brought her tips money to me, and she said, "I want to be your first donor," and um, and that's that's how I got my political start. But my family they they never dreamed that I would run for office. Um, I think it's unheard of in my family. But in my ward, I'm represented by um, Asia and Argyle, which is, for some people, you know, um, the, the um, highest population of Vietnamese and um, 
Chinese and Thai people, um, and they want representation, and that's really what it was about um, for me. Um, but not only that, it's about everything that we need to work for in the city of Chicago, and not just in Andersonville, Edgewater, and Uptown, where 48th Ward is where I uh, represent, but um, everyone deserves to be able to have a home that they can lock their door. Um, everyone deserves health care, including mental health supports. Um, um, my parents were nurses. I'm a physical therapist, too, so I know that it's uh, working in the Cook County Hospital. I know um, that that's so important. Um, and also, um, I, I believe in community. So um, uh, Andersonville was, was my community. I was rooted there because of my small business, um, and that's how um, I wanted my kids to feel like like you can live in, in the city but also create a village where people care about each other. Um, and so my small business was that we were able to walk to school, um, go to church, walk to church, um, walk to friends' homes, and um, and, and that kind of tight-knit living is, is what, um, what keeps me here in Chicago. I think that everybody should be able to, to feel like they belong. Um, and that's the reason why, that's the reason why I, I ran. All right. Uh, so I'm going to ask this question. I asked Lenny to answer it first and then goes to Nicole. Uh, I, I probably know more about Lenny's background. Uh, than Nicole's, because Lenny and I work very close together. Where, uh, it was very helpful to me booking guests for my show, so God bless you, Lenny. Uh, and so I know the whole story about, like, I remember a phone conversation I had with you when you said that you were thinking of running. I go, you sure you want to do that? I remember I was walking down the street and was like, are you sure you want to do this, Lenny? Uh, there's so many freaking factions in the 48th Ward, and uh, I don't know. And she said, no, I'm going to do it. I said, all right, God bless you. Um, so let's talk about that. And I, then, uh, Nicole, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, the 48th Ward and the 11th Ward uh, are very diverse wards in many ways, not just ethnically diverse, uh, but economically diverse uh, uh, and politically, ideologically diverse. You know what I'm saying? You got uh, all kinds of lefties in the 48th Ward who usually love fighting each other more than they uh, like fighting Trump. Uh, and you have all kinds of Democrats, not so many lefties in the 11th, uh, who love to uh, battle each other as well. So, first to you, Lenny, then to you, Nicole. How do you find peace among battling factions uh, in a city's war? And I'm thinking about this a lot these days with what's going on in the city council and the larger issue of immigrants, welcoming immigrants to Chicago and getting different communities to sign on to that. So in your opinion, I'll start with you, Lenny, how do you bring different factions of people together who have no shortage of reasons to be fighting among each other? I think we have to acknowledge that we all want the same things. We all want the same things. And that, for me, means community, good homes, safety, on the streets and in the sidewalks, schools. We want to be able to enjoy our neighborhoods. And my neighborhood happens to be, if you don't know, the 48th Ward. It's Edgewater, parts of Andersonville, and Uptown, including Asia on Argyle. And I believe that it is one of the most diverse wards in Chicago. And that is across race and class 
ethnicity, and you can even see it in the buildings. You know, we've got single-family homes, we've got apartment buildings, we've got three and four flats. The thing about the 48th Ward is that, and not like the 10th Ward, which is very large, you know, where I was born, on the southeast side of Chicago, but the 48th Ward is very small and is condensed. And that means a lot of us are living literally on top of each other in high rises. And what is connecting us right now are our structures, like sidewalks and streets and transit. All those things that connect us. Right now, there's so much happening in the world. One of the things that I was really glad to do after 2016 and zooming out and looking at the federal stuff for many years is to zoom in. And honestly, I am so happy to be talking about potholes and streets and sidewalks and stop signs because those are the things that really affect people's daily living. I mean, we are talking about deaths that are happening on Broadway in Winona because a pedestrian just wanted to cross the road to get to work, and that's not right. So I think that what brings us together are systems and structures, and I'm really excited to talk about infrastructure in ways that we can actually change and address public safety. Nicole? Did you dream of talking about infrastructure when you were a little girl dancing? God, no. Um, God, how do you find peace? Um, I, I'm still looking for it, if I'm honest. But I, I, I think we got to be real about that. I and mean, so here in the 11th Ward, which is, I'll go through, it's, it's all of Chinatown. It's the first Asian majority ward in the entire city of Chicago. Um, so it's got all of Chinatown, all of Bridgeport, all of Armour. A uh, piece of uh, Canaryville and a little slice of McKinley Park. Uh, and more recently, I've been thinking about how to describe this newly drawn ward uh, where Chinatown has come into uh, the 11th Ward. And Chinatown had always been gerrymandered um, and was never all, all together in one place. Uh, but it's a whole other a whole other community that had a different way of operating, had different expectations of city services, let's say. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily a priority for the previous alder person in the way that maybe Pilsen was uh, for the 25th Ward. It was sort of on the outskirts. It's a different kind of, uh, different kind of issues, too. Right? You've got an immigrant population, the only Chinatown that continues to grow. Um, and I don't know, am I causing that feedback? The, it's the only Chinatown that continues to grow, um, and part of what's great about that is we continue to attract new immigrants to this community, and I, I, that is a testament to the structures and organizations that we have supporting people when they're, uh, when they're newly arrived. And if you're coming from China, Chinatown in Chicago is not a bad place to be. You get all the food that you are accustomed to eating. They speak your language. There are organizations there to help you get started, to help you find a job, to help you learn English. There are bilingual programs for your children when they enter school, bilingual like English as a second language with Chinese um, as the other. Um, so when I think about your question about how do you find peace with all of these like different disparate interests and in, in everything, um, you know, I'll, I'll echo some of what uh, what Lenny said with the uh, 
finding the places where we know we have commonality and the humanity of it all, right? What do we, what, we all want to live in a safe neighborhood. Um, people here want, we want nice things in our neighborhood. We want to have more like Maria's, you know, a, a little local watering hole that you can walk to any night of the week and just hang out and see friends. Um, or to go to a local noodle shop or a burger joint or get a slice of pizza at Riccoveni's. You know, that's the sort of thing that I think we hold on to. Um, we look for those places, especially with schools and parishes, I would say, with, uh, with religious organizations too. Those are places where people naturally gather and I think we can look for ways to build community um, through those types of organizations. But I think more than anything, um, the way I try to sort of make sense and find peace in, in, in all of the ruckus, and we'll talk about the city council later, I'm sure, um, <laughs> that um, we, we just have to stick to the basics, right? I mean, we have, to, we have to reach for those places where we have commonality, because if we don't, there's no hope for us. So, I mean, I'm curious on the flip side of that, um, you know, specifically speaking about the uh, Asian or Asian American communities in your respective wards, as you were campaigning, um, you know, this past winter, uh, what did you hear from your constituents in the Asian communities in your ward about what their priorities were? Um, what were the things that people were asking for? You mentioned that this was a unique, like now this 11th Ward situation is unique because for the first time the entire Chinatown community is united in this one ward, and I'm assuming that translates to a much stronger voice uh, in the political scene in the ward. So I'm just curious, as you were out there um, making your case to the voters, what is it that um, those particular communities, those uh, AAPI communities in your wards, what are they asking for? Well, that there was representation at all or the possibility was pretty incredible. Um, I think as I knocked on doors and I talked to more and more people, as I talked to more uh, and more constituents, you know, what I heard over and over again, because not very many people were accustomed to getting a, a political candidate at their door that looked like me and that could speak to them in Cantonese. Um, they were just, I, they were just excited. I mean, I, at its most base level, they were so excited that someone that looked like them was running for office and that there was the possibility that someone would finally, finally represent their voice and their interests. Because for our entire existence here, until I was elected to office or appointed to office, there was not a representative. Uh, a Chinese, I'm the first Chinese-American anything on the City Council of Chicago. 185-year history. 157 years since the first Chinese came. Thank you. And that meant something. I mean, it meant a lot to the to our community. Uh, if I'm getting into issues, which yeah. I'm, I'm sure you want to know about, uh, public safety, Chinatown uh, beat 914 in the Ninth District uh, in 2022. If you followed any of the debates, and my opponent really loved saying, your beat, the beat that you live in, has the highest robbery rates of any other beat in the entire city. So there's concern, clearly, about safety, especially post-COVID. There was an increase in hate crimes um, as well. Um, and and they, they want to be safe, just like everybody else does. The, 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 second, the second thing was education. Please, get us a high school. Yeah, tell people a little bit of the context around the, the, the high school issue, sure. um, if people aren't familiar with that. Yeah, so um, 
for those that aren't familiar, there. So I was also a local school council chairperson uh, when my kids were in elementary school at Haynes Elementary in Chinatown, uh, long before any of this happened. Um, and when my kids were in probably third and fifth grade, um, there was finally a conversation, a real conversation going on about the potential of building a neighborhood high school that would serve the feeder schools from Chinatown, Bridgeport, and the South Loop. These areas are among the only areas that have seen growth demographically that um, over the last 10 years, because the census is what really sort of made this even more possible. Uh, but because we were growing, we don't, we don't have neighborhood high schools. My neighborhood high school is uh, Phillips Academy in Brownsville. Uh, the other neighborhood high school that's served by the 11th Ward uh, or that we're districted to is uh, Tilden High School. Um, and if any of you grew up around here or if you have kids, they're not the most desirable high schools. You're not aspiring to go to those. And it's not a knock against those schools, but schools are competitive. Um, the Asian community, and it's we're feeding into the stereotypes, but every single Chinese parent wa wants their kid to go to a selective enrollment school. Um, and if there isn't a selective enrollment school, they've got other decisions that they're faced with, right? Where is there another school that I'd be willing to send my child to um, especially with crime the way it is on the CTA. You know, they've got to travel so far or I can't drive them or now maybe I have to move to the suburbs because I'm fearful that if they don't get into the right school uh, that they're not going to have a good future. So the conversation around a high school had been going on in the community for quite some time, probably 20 years actually. The Coalition for a Better Chinese American Community uh, has started this a very long time ago. I think it started as like an all Chinese like immersion school um, to a charter school and then finally to a neighborhood school. Um, and to be clear, I was never a fan of a school that was just going to serve the Chinese community. I think that was the, the worst thing that we could do. I saw all the benefits of having gone to magnet schools um, in CPS and that, that just changed my life and my world uh, because I got to interact with other kids that weren't like me. I was taught to, I, you know, I was raised to be somewhat like, you know, leery and fearful of black people in the neighborhood because my, my grandmother and my aunt's only experiences with African-American people at the time were the ones that were committing the crimes in the neighborhood. My aunt was mugged a couple of times and uh, somebody else was, was burgled. So the, if the only picture that you have and the interaction that you have with one group of people is a negative one, there's fear. And I believe that having an all Chinese school um, would only feed into that fear. So we have then, fast forward to when I was, uh, when I was appointed, um, CPS was already down a road um, doing research into site selections for a potential um, near South High School. Uh, land, uh, several different sites were, were, uh, were <coughs> evaluated and the, they landed on a parcel at 24th and Michigan uh, that was part of the former uh, Harold Ickes um, uh, public housing. Uh, projects over there and it's a beautiful campus over there there's planned uh, there's actually two buildings that are already built there uh, with uh, mixed commercial and uh, affordable housing uh, and this parcel of land was chosen there was some controversy around um, CHA's promise to return housing to residents uh, which I think became a really big roadblock at the end of the day uh, and that was during the Lightfoot administration um, Representative Teresa Ma had secured some funding from the state to help pay for the part of the school. Um, and it seemed like we were really like, we, like this was gonna happen. 
we were really started to that point, and then uh, it came to a loggerheads uh, when the RepMa threatened to pull the funding if the site wasn't uh, reconsidered uh, because of the housing issues. Um, and then we had an election, and the administration's changed. So there's not really, there hasn't been a, an active conversation at this point um, about the future of that high school. Um, obviously, the city has lots of different uh, priorities at this point, and that's a little lower on the priority list. But it's among the highest of the constituents that I talk to, especially those that have young children, you know, who are looking at, you know, if it takes four years, four or five years to build a high school, and my kid is like three, I'm in good shape. Mm -hmm. Your kid's like 10 or 11, this isn't really going to matter to you because by the time the school is ready, if it happens at all, they will have, you know, already selected a high school. So yeah. those were the issues, right? So safety, public safety, um, and education, and then um, I think language access, mm. right? So being able to connect with services, uh, and because if you don't speak the language, um, you have you have no way to connect to any of it. You don't even know what's available to you unless someone's translating it for you. Um, from Chinese to English. Yeah. Lenny, what about you? What did you hear in the, from the Asian Argyle community? What, what were the priorities uh, in that community as you were campaigning? Yeah, so if, you, if you've never been to Asian Argyle, I definitely recommend you come, especially in the summertime on Thursdays where it's the um, night markets. Um, and the night markets is um, a time where people come together with different vendors and small businesses open their doors and there's music and dance. And what you wouldn't know about that is that that was um, a public safety initiative because Asian Argyle was not, um, was not known to be a safe place to go um, at some point. Um, it's a, a designated hotspot uh, where the CPD said there's a lot of gang activities there. So, um, Businesses, chambers of commerce, and elected officials at the time brought people together to do what's called positive loitering so that people would get in the streets and we would know each other and we would get to know each other and we would celebrate with each other. And that's really what I've been hearing a lot about is public safety. Public safety is um, the top of everybody's minds. And for us on Asia on Argyle, um, we're going through so much change, especially... If you didn't know, the CTA is, um, is reconstructing the red line. So Asian Argyle, um, like Bryn Mawr, like Lawrence, like Berwyn, um, is getting, they're getting new train stations. But in the construction of it, they realized that the embankments aren't going to hold up. So they took the embankments down. It's like, if you've not come by lately, please do. Because the first time in, um, you know, 100 years you're going to get to see new land underneath the L tracks. But what that has been doing is devastating small businesses um, on our business corridor, Asia and Argyle. Um, so that's really, that's really the biggest thing right now. How are small businesses that make up economic corridors like Argyle, which is like anchors of communities in some communities, especially neighborhoods like um, Uptown and uh, a walkable distance from Andersonville. How is it that we're going to survive through changes like that, even after we're um, trying to still stand up after COVID? Um, and also at the same time, we're um, facing um, high rent gentrification. People are getting pushed out. 
And the older businesses, the business owners, are deciding to retire. So how is it that we're going to retain the character of our neighborhoods, especially in a business corridor like Argyle, um, that's already struggling to stay afloat? So we're doing all that we can to ensure that all those small businesses understand the changes that are happening right now in Chicago to create safe workspaces for people um, and also give them the resources that they need. But generally, you know, not just Asia and Argyle, but there are Asians all throughout the 48th Ward, including um, Edgewater, um, and a lot of Filipinos are, and by the way, I'm the first Filipino to ever sit on city council in 185 years, so thank you. And I do also just want to shout out, you mentioned um, Representative yeah. Theresa Ma. Like, this is a moment where I just want to recognize it wasn't that long ago where we didn't have representation at the U.S. Senate level. And now, you know, as the CTA is getting reconstructed and they are inviting our representatives from the U.S. Uh, Congress, we are inviting U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, you know, to see what's happening in the 48th Ward. And also, not only that, we have Theresa Ma, who is the first representative in the legislature, um, Asian American um, representative. And not only that, we have Ram Villavalam, who is the first state senator to represent us. Um, and not only that, we have in Uptown um, Han Nguyen, who is um, our first Vietnamese representative at the, at the state level in, in, uh, the, on the north side. It's, it's incredible that we could say that we have Asian American representative at every single level of government, including Cook County with Josina Morita, and that is really what is making up the Asian caucus today, um, which is a challenge, right? Because when we're talking about Asian Americans, they're not all concentrated in Chinatown and Asia. It's a very large segment of the global population. Very large. Very, very large, large diversity of different people. Yes, and, and a growing number. So we're talking about Filipinos, Chinese, Vietnamese, South Asian, you know, Indian, and, and we're in and Nabila Si, the first Muslim to sit in the legislature in, in Illinois. So we, um, as a fastest-growing ethnic population in Illinois, really proud to be here um, sitting with you, talking about the reasons why we have to lift our voices up. Um, I'm also really proud to say that in Illinois, we are saying that history matters. And so um, those who are now in office are saying Asian-American history needs to be taught in schools. But it's not just Asian-American history. It's all of history, including LGBTQ plus um, history. It's, it's all of our identities that need to be represented in our history. Because if we don't learn from history, where are we going from there? So uh, I want to uh, add, Theresa Ma uh, uh, was invited to come here. And she very much wanted to be here tonight, but she had to be in Springfield. So I just wanted to make sure uh, we get that on the record. Uh, she would be up here as well. All right. Um, so I'm really struggling with this. I'll, and I'll start with Nicole, and then Lenny, you can answer this one. Uh, I was listening to your stories uh, and the people when you said you were the first uh, 
like Chinese American and the city council or Filipino people cheered. And that's like the ideal response. But the reality right now in the coal, and, I'm really, and again, I, I don't know how to articulate this, even I really, the reaction of so many Chicagoans to the Venezuelan uh, immigrants, and, and, and then it's just like a hatred and an opposition and um, very strident, angry voices um, throughout the city. It doesn't matter really which neighborhood we're in. I'm not blaming one particular area or the other. Uh, and I really want to know how to reconcile that. You know, I don't want to be completely cynical, which is very easy for me to be uh, when I look at my fellow Chicagoans. Um, I really struggle with this, Nicole. Um, I should be in like a 12-step program or something about this. Um, but it's really hard not to be very cynical about Chicagoans right now and how they're responding. And it's, in my humble opinion, abysmal response across the board. Uh, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You thought, you know, your, your family's emergence here, where you're on the city council, you know, it's not even an issue to your kids, I think, in a way that it would have been to you. Same with you, Lenny. And yet, this, like, hate that shows up here in Chicago when there's new immigrants from Venezuela. Please help me. How are you reconciling this, and how are you figuring this out? Yeah, it's a lot, and it's every day, right? If you, uh, you live in the neighborhood and you drive anywhere near the vicinity of 31st and Halstead, it's in your face. You can't unsee the tents that are all over the, uh, the sidewalk in front of the 9th District. Um, it's a very complex issue that we're dealing with right now. It's unprecedented what we're seeing in terms of the relentless number of buses that have been sent here from the border, from, from other cities like Denver. God, I mean, like the, that's mind-blowing to me, too. Um, how this is happening. Um, and I think that there, I'm really proud, honestly, of the, the way that this community here in the 11th Ward and the 9th District in particular has shown up for the migrants um, and for, you know, we, we refer to them as our new neighbors. Um, since last August, there have been people that on their own, they got involved with the first. I, I kind of came on a little after um, to work with them, but uh, I've, I've been so proud to support that collaboration um, to do what we can to help the the new arrivals as they're uh, they're at the police station being staged, waiting for shelter, um, as they come in and they don't have anything. Um, so I turned my uh, my former campaign office into a free shop. So one of the things that we're doing is we're collecting donations at all of the elected officials' offices, my ward included, uh, and people are dropping uh, basic needs things off. Uh, folks are buying things off of Amazon wish list right now, you know, getting coats and long underwear and sweaters and boots and hats. Uh, this is what people need. You know, so November 1st, we had a zero, it was below zero, and there were people sleeping in tents. There were babies and children sleeping in tents. Um, and as a mother, as a human being, I don't know how you see that um, and, and not have some sympathy for the situation that folks are in. I look at the, the migrants that have sacrificed everything to walk literally across the continent um, to find their way to a better opportunity. Again, you know, I can only imagine what their situation is like um, back home that 
they did all that to to get on a bus then to come to a place like Chicago and in the middle of summer is not so bad right now yeah you know getting off of a bus and in, uh, in, we've been having an unseasonably warm week but we know we're Chicagoans it could be zero one week and 80 the next and you know it'll probably be sub-zero you know in two weeks um, it's inhumane to continue to bring more people here into the city when we don't have space to put people um, you know, I get comments about the tents that are uh, on the sidewalk, and my response to constituents is, yeah, I know. I know the public way is not passable. Um, and, I, I, and I'm sorry that they're there, and I'm sorry that we have tents at all. Nobody belongs in a tent. Um, families cer certainly don't. Children don't. Uh, but these tents are the only things that are separating these individuals from the elements. Um, so for the time being, we, we have to do with what we have. Um, and the flip side of that, as you rightly pointed out, there's a, there's a lot of anger out there. And I think part of that is because I, I, I think that a lot of people don't feel heard on this issue. Um, you know, I wrote a letter to the mayor um, probably about a month ago now when I realized that our police district had nearly 300 people at it. Uh, and the next highest number of any police district had 100 less. You know, and the, the police districts fall into areas and then there are different areas of the city. Area one, which we fall into, had more, uh, had more migrant populations at all of their police districts than area two and area five combined. So to me, there was an equity issue there. And there are five bathrooms, three porta potties and two inside for 300 people to use. It's unsanitary, it's unhealthy. Um, and, and I, I simply asked Mayor Johnson, please stop sending us any more migrants right now until you can decompress, until we can get more people moved out. It is unsafe for us to be. And this was when it was still warm. There weren't as many tents out. Now we have more. Um, I think the situation continues to get more desperate because we're, we can't house as many people as quickly. Um, and as folks are sitting in limbo at these police districts, um, you know, they're sitting around waiting all day. So they're walking around, they're, they're panhandling, they're asking for help. Most of them, everyone that I meet wants to know if, they, if I have a job that they can do. Do you have work that I can do? My husband can do construction. I used to do hair back home. You know, I can, you know, do, I can garden for you. You want me to pull your weeds? Um, and it's unfortunate that the situation right now is that they can't work legally, uh, which also makes them a very vulnerable population. And we know that these things are going on, and they are, they are uh, at risk of being taken advantage of. Um, but I think it, as the, the rest of the city is grappling with this, and we're putting, we're putting migrants into places where there aren't resources in the community that are pre-existing that could support them. You know, I, I told you earlier why I think it's so great that Chinatown has continued to grow here in Chicago, because our community can support the new incoming uh, immigrants. There are resources for them. They speak the language. The food is here. You don't, we don't have a little Venezuela. I mean, we will after all of this, I'm sure. Um, but there isn't that right now. Yeah. And you have now people in black and brown communities and the African-American community who have rightly felt like their, their communities have been disinvested um, in. And now you know, the city is clamoring to invest all of this money, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, for migrants and everybody else is asking, what about our communities? We have people here that we can't take care of. And like, no, nobody's wrong in any of this. This is the, this is the, 
like the worst part of it. There's need on both sides. And it's not, it's not, it's not on both, it's on all sides. We have, uh, we have immigrants that are not Venezuelan who with varying statuses have been here for a long time and have waited in line without resources. Uh, and, and I can see how one would feel like, why do they get a pass like this? Now, again, this is an unprecedented crisis where we've never received an influx of people without government support, without federal government support like this, right? So I, I want to make that distinction because we know that we got Ukrainians and we got uh, people from Afghanistan as well after the U.S. exited um, Afghanistan. In fact, in my old job at United, I helped to fly many of them to the army bases where they started out, where they got wraparound services, where they were not taken off of these bases until there was a home waiting for them in a host city. So we know as a, the United States government can do this. We have the capability, but what's happening right now is that we've been kind of left hung out here to dry on our own, and the city is doing everything that it possibly can to take care of the people that need to be taken care of. Yeah. Sorry, Lenny? that was really long with the answer, but I could talk about that for hours. Yeah, I could too. Lenny? Yeah. So thank you, Nicole, for all of that. I mean, we're talking If you could also just give some context about how you're seeing this this so-called migrant crisis play out in your ward as well. Okay, so the 48th ward, again, includes Edgewater, and we have one of the largest park district field houses, the Broadway Armory. And in August, in earlier July, uh, we were asked to look into our ward to see what was available. Um, in the 48th ward, we have very little land, but we do have the field house. Um, but the problem was it's a used field house. You know, our residents actually use that, that facility. And here, here's the thing. <laughs> I just want to say, I, I, um, I have been in office since May, May. And my, my seat is in the third row. And right behind me is the gallery. When you're talking about what is in the air right now about the migrant crisis and hate, you need only to come to City Hall and attend one of our meetings right now. It is so hot in there. And it's, it's not because the lack of people wanting to do something good. It is because People, for far too long, have felt unheard. And this is on the south and the west sides of Chicago. And those who have been waiting on waiting lists for affordable housing for far too long. And it's also about the 400,000 people who are waiting to get into the U.S., because they want to seek a better life for themselves and their families. The hate right now is because it's really hard to listen to each other. And right now in City Hall, there's just no time. There's no time. I mean, we're talking about, I don't have police districts in my district, but they are three tents out. It is not right. Literally, babies are sleeping on the floor. You know, we have the Ishmaeli Center, and we had a coat drive, and we are welcoming 
people into the door, and these are mothers with toddlers. Can you imagine? They're coming here on buses, and their shoes are still wet. And then at the same time, we have tents that have been put up next to porta potties on the lakefront. You know, these are folks that have been waiting for shelter. I have a guy who's sleeping under a porch on Azra on Argyle because he, he's been waiting for shelter for too long. And when you're, so you're, when you're talking about hate, just come to one of those city council meetings. I, I promise you, you will get enough of it because there's so much hate in the air right now and it's because we're not listening to each other. In the 48th Ward, thank God, you know, we have a lot of nonprofits. Centro Romero, who has been doing this work for far too long, bringing people in, not only Venezuelans, but Haitians, Ukrainians, anyone who needs the support right now. In the 48th Ward, we have five public schools and four of them have 40% are diverse populations where they don't speak English to the point where the teachers have to invest in AI technology to understand their kids. You know, so we, we in the 48th Ward, we welcome, if it was my choice, we would welcome all. We would welcome all. But they're, they're, when you're talking about scarcity, here's what I say to you. If you know people who know people who are in touch with Catholic charities, thank them for their work, but also tap on the archdiocese and say, you know, what, what's your mission here? What's your mission statement and how can you help with this crisis? Because there is a push for faith leaders to come together to open up their doors, to open up their churches, to find ways that philanthropy can help it can't just be the city of Chicago and the city council trying to figure out this, this uh, crisis. We are also asking for, you know, I was a physical therapist and I worked at Oak Forest Hospital in the Cook County, and that facility is closed. You know, what are we doing with facilities, healthcare facilities that have already the, the showers in place? Why are we taking over, you know, schools that have been disinvested for so long and and then all of a sudden we can, you know, create spaces for people to live in them where, where those neighborhoods have been waiting for neighborhood schools. When you're talking about what we're doing right now, what gives me hope is that people are stepping up. I, I thank the mutual aid groups who are out there every day checking on the new families that are arriving at the police stations. So if that's you, thank you so much. I mean, these are folks that are bringing food and water and also health care to those who are, especially the children and the mothers. And I know that Chicago wants to be a welcoming city, but here's the thing. I am getting stopped on the sidewalks and on the L tracks, and they're saying, what are we doing? Like, why, why are you not challenging our status as a sanctuary city? And I say that we, there is room. There isn't a scarcity. There's only a lack of will to figure out creative ways to help people get along. Because here's the thing. 
those 350 people that are in the Broadway Armory right now, I would like them to stay in our ward because those kids are going to our public schools. How are we creating structures where we can welcome everybody and take care of all of us, including those who have been waiting for far too long? All right. Uh, so we're here now with, at a moment about what happened today at the city council. <clears throat> I don't know if anybody uh, followed it. I tried my best to follow it, uh, even though I had uh, other things going on. But this issue uh, about Chicago as a sanctuary city, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on this. Uh, this provoked, of course, uh, the special meeting last week uh, where uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa was trying to block people from getting in uh, to the meeting so they wouldn't get a quorum uh, or to uh, round up votes uh, against the proposal. And it just, for me, as an outsider looking in, seemed like a complete exercise in futility and nothingness because even if the city voted 80% to take away sanctuary status, both of you know this has nothing None. to do with, but we might as well have an election on whether you get your liver removed. That's how little it has to do with the issue. But people are coming up to Lenny on a train going, stop being a sanctuary city. Like that in itself will get people out of the Broadway armory and they can go back to basketball games there. It's like just... Nicole, I am so used to Chicagoans being clueless, but this is a special form of cluelessness that is like even hard for me to fathom here. You know, I, I think, and yes, look, you are absolutely right. There's nothing that we can do to, on our own as a city to change our status as a sanctuary city. We are a sanctuary state. Ergo, we're a sanctuary <laughs> city. Uh, we don't have the authority. Yeah. Um, and the referendum question would be a non-binding uh, referendum question, which means uh, it'll turn out to be an expensive poll um, about how people feel. And I, I think part of the challenge, Ben, is that the administration prior and this administration too have talked about the migrant issue uh, and sort of they pulled in the sanctuary city piece of this. Like it was pulled together as if they were linked. The sanctuary city ordinance that you hear people talk about says nothing about spending resources and taking care of people. It literally just says we will not cooperate. The Chicago Police Department will not cooperate with federal authorities when it comes to deportations or getting in the business of immigration. That's all that says. It speaks nothing to what we spend. Uh, and that is a decision that both mayors, last two mayors, um, have decided uh, because in the spirit of being a sanctuary city, we should be providing uh, whatever we can to the people that are newly arriving. Uh, the real question, and I, you know, last, let me speak to last week for a second. Last Thursday, if you have paid attention at all, we made the news for like the worst, worst reasons. It was not, it was not a great day for city government. Um, and, and it was not a good look for the aldermanic body. Um, you know, I'm elected, maybe some of you guys voted for me, and if you did, thank you. Um, but it's my job to show up to meetings. And if a city council meeting is called, the expectation is that we go and we show up. Um, and I can tell you based on the volume of phone calls that I get in the ward office about people who feel some sort of way 
um, about this migrant crisis, and there, there really doesn't appear to be a plan in their mind uh, that they can see or an end in sight um, that, yes, this issue of sanctuary city, because it's all tied up emotionally to the money that we're spending um, on this crisis to take care of people, um, that I couldn't not be there for the discussion. And let me go on the record. I have no desire to change Chicago from being a welcoming city. I'm a daughter of immigrants. I don't want that to change. And this is an and, it's not a but. And we have a responsibility uh, to the people who are the residents of this city and, and how funds are spent um, and how they're directed. Uh, and the reality is no city is equipped to do this. No city is, has, you know, 100 people just sitting on the sidelines ready to, like, jump in on a moment's notice and set up a shelter um, and, you know, manage to get health care for people uh, and all of the things that are needed right now to support the, these new arrivals. So we do like any other government entity would do. You find a contractor, and those contracts are expensive. I don't like the way that we've been spending this money because, look, the, these contracts are expensive. You look at what Garda World... Uh, has done with the city, you know, it's a six, it's a, it's a one-year contract, I think, for up to six camps, uh, base camps, um, for a period of a year, and that's a $29 million contract. Now, that's only if we do it and we build any of these things, but that, a $29 million contract on the heels of we've spent, I think I heard today that we're spending $40 million a month right now on this migrant crisis. Um, and we, we had a, we had a budget meeting, um, I don't know, a couple days ago. Maybe it was even yesterday. Is today only Tuesday? It was yesterday. Oh, my God. Um, Mondays are really long days. They're ward nights if you need to come see me about anything. Um, but we approved getting money from the state. It was like $30 million. It was like, awesome. $30 million from the state for this migrant crisis. Do you know what it paid for? Half of August and all of September. Because we're in arrears. Uh, so this... This is what's getting people very angry, I think, is the, the money that's being spent. And it's not, um, we're not getting a commitment from the federal government. And to be sure, this is a federal issue that we're, we're having to pay the price on. And I don't know where the federal government is on this. Wow. They're, they're quite absent at the end of the day. Uh, and I, and I, that also is part of the anger, right? But who can Chicago residents be most angry with right now? They're all yeah. You got that right. <laughs> um, yeah. We, so we want to open it up to questions. We'll keep talking, uh, but in case uh, some questions have been percolating, um, if you've got a question, um, can we have you come up here and grab the mic? Frank, you're up. Well, first off, in Ohio, the abortion is now enshrined in the state constitution in Ohio. <laughs> also, what are, the, what are the odds of passing a luxury tax in this, on luxury items in the city to help fund housing for, for the migrants? For help, help, to help fund housing to build affordable housing for migrants and citizens, like a luxury tax, unlike luxury items, like a boat and stuff to help fund housing, to help for the migrants being built. Rock, paper, scissors? No, I'll take it. Um, thanks for the question, Frank, right? Yeah. yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, I, I think the city has to look, for, look under every rock and cushion for revenue opportunities 
um, to help support all of the needs that we have. So, you know, uh, Bring Chicago Home made it as a referendum question today. Mm -hmm. and, and that, once it's passed, is going to be, let's call it a start. Um, I, I still have my own concerns about how this, how the, the tax itself, the real estate transfer tax, especially in a volatile real estate market, and I think that's probably one of my biggest concerns because it goes up and down so much. Um, and currently, uh, the commercial district downtown is, is really struggling. Um, but it's a start, right? So if the, if the city government right now is conservatively, conservatively estimating that's going to be $100 million um, to build affordable, supportive housing, um, I can tell you that building affordable housing is not affordable <laughs> um, to build. Uh, on average right now, I think we, we just passed something in finance um, last week in Austin, and I think that the cost to build was something like $650,000 a unit. If we assume that, and what the city is assuming at this point, is that they can build a unit of housing for approximately $250,000. Um, with that $100 million, they'd use $75 million of it to build the housing and $25 million for the supportive services. So we're talking about 300 units of housing for probably families, households, um, compared to the 68,000, by some estimates, uh, of, of unhoused and doubled-up folks that we have. Uh, I think the, the key takeaway here is that we need to – there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and, and Bring Chicago Home is, is one part of that. Um, your luxury tax could be as well. I, I would say I'll bring it up with Alderman Hall, who is the new chair of this uh, revenue subcommittee. So I'll, I'll mention it to him. But I, you know, I think we can't rule anything out. I, I think we have to be open to any and all possibilities where we're at right now. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, and I thank you, Nicole. And I'm also very excited to support Bring Chicago Home, and not only to provide a permanent revenue stream so that we can fix our houselessness problem and end it. But not only that, make sure that the housing that we have is preserved, including the SROs. I have five in my ward, and really that's like the last stop before houselessness. So we need to preserve all the housing that we have, including affordable rents. I'm a, I'm a renter, and I was fortunate enough to land an apartment 24 years ago in Andersonville where my landlord cared about us um, and made sure that we were okay. And in, in the meantime, you know, our family was able to, to thrive there and uh, raise my three kids there um, and, um, and stay in the neighborhood. So we need natural, natural uh, affordable housing as well as um, building affordable housing and bring Chicago home is that. So I don't want to, um, uh, I want to actually shout out to um, Alderwoman Maria Haddon, who was really in charge. And, and it wasn't that long ago that um, city council wouldn't even have that conversation about affordable housing. So it was a huge deal that we passed it today. So thank you for bringing that up. Great. Go ahead. Hi, my name's Sarah. Uh, I live here in the ward. Hi, Nicole. Um, I have a multi-part, but they're short. Um, the first is, you already kind of touched on it, what are you both going to do to help make sure that Bring Chicago Home passes in March so that we do have that revenue stream? Um, and then two, uh, around housing, I know that there are fair, uh, fair cloth credits that CHA has that they're not building of units of housing that they're allowed to build that they haven't built with a huge wait list going on for CHA. Um, so what do you see down the pipeline around addressing that 
And then finally, Nicole, you had touched on the federal government not being around. Um, so is there any sort of movement happening to make sure that the federal government is stepping up for work authorizations for all of the new arrivals and not just Venezuelans since July 31st? Um, and then also like money to back that up to help relocate people the way the federal government did for Ukrainians and Afghanistan residents. Thanks. Okay. We're, we're, you want to start? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so what are we going to do to ensure that um, March 19th that we have the people's vote about Bring Chicago Home? One thing that we all need to do in every single ward is to ensure that people understand what's on the ballot. So getting people out to vote, making sure that they understand the referendum that is proposed, which is to um, to have a permanent revenue stream so that we can have um, funding. Um, and, and people in the 48th Ward, they, they are the ones that are going out to the tents on the shoreline and bringing, um, you know, meals and also heat in the in the winter time but that's not sustainable they are all willing to pay a little bit more um, for a real estate transfer one-time real estate transfer tax um, so that we can ensure that people have homes um, and then the other questions include uh, what the federal government is doing um, so and CHA so thank you CHA was the next one um, I think we're we're asking a lot of questions about like what CHA is doing. Um, actually, that that comes up very regularly in city councils. Like, really, where is CHA with their credits, and, and what role is CHA playing with the housing stock that we do have, vouchers that we have for the people that are already on the list? So I think as alders, we have to keep pressure on CHA. I can't tell you what they're doing today because I I actually don't have an answer to that, but I'll check and I'll get back to you because I know how to do that. Um, uh, on the federal government, you know, Mayor, Mayor Johnson went to uh, Washington, D.C. To, to talk to uh, uh, President Biden last week on Thursday. Um, so many things happened last week on Thursday. Uh, I, I'm not sure where that ended up, but I know that, uh, that the president is scheduled to come to Chicago, I think, on November 9th. Um, and there's, there's been a lot of calls for him to come and see what's going on with the migrant crisis here in Chicago and, and why it is we're, we're asking for the federal government to step up because this is a federal issue. This is not an issue of our creation, uh, but we are at the impact of it. Uh, and, so are, and, and more importantly, so are the, the nearly 20,000 uh, migrants that we've had come through um, thus far. I'm sorry, what else did you have, Sarah? Was, there was one more at the end. Work authorizations, and you know, and I know we've talked about this on our mutual aid calls. Um, I think case management is a very big black hole right now, in my opinion. I don't want to, I don't want to speak for, um, I don't want to speak for the the entire city. This is just my opinion and what I've observed. Case management doesn't happen until you get into a shelter, and it's still unclear to me how much case management is happening beyond just finding you a place to live. Um, in my opinion, that. As soon as you step foot off of a bus here, we should be working with those, with those new arrivals to start the process so that their clock can start for their work authorization. Why we're having to wait two to four to sometimes up to six weeks for somebody to get into a shelter and then to wait for housing and then it's still unclear when they're going to get their work authorization paperwork even in. I think there's still, there's, there's not enough being done 
on that end. So, you know, we're not helping ourselves solve this problem either. For sure. I, I will also say regarding the paperwork for, for the work authorizations, if you have a nonprofit in your area, for instance, in the 48th Ward, we have Central Romero, they're looking for Spanish-speaking volunteers because it is an application process and, um, and, it, and it takes some time. So um, any time that you can spend with uh, folks um, that are welcoming um, organizations like the Vietnamese Association of Illinois or Chinese Mutual Aid Association or uh, Central Romero and you speak Spanish, please walk in at any time and um, offer a couple hours a week or spread the word. Anyone who speaks Spanish is welcome to help in this process. I, I'm going to offer just one more thing, if I may, because this isn't a... I, I'm going to seem like an angry person right now. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, because I, I think this is something we all care very deeply about, right? It's hard to, it's hard to look at these families and the situation that they're in and, and just know that we're, we're not working effectively to address the issues. Um, part of the challenge is we've been leaning on mutual aid volunteers. I met Sarah when I talked to her. She, was, she, had, a, she had a storage she had shelves put up in her basement because the mutual aid organization uh, was collecting donations and she was running out of space. I called her. It was Mother's, was it Mother's Day? It was Mother's Day because I spent my Mother's Day with my mom bouncing around to Ikea's to, and, and Costco's to buy underwear and socks. I asked Sarah, what are the things that are most needed right now? Um, you know, you've been doing this for so long and it's, I think it's completely unfair um, of the city to continue to ask for more volunteers right now. When we have resources, we have contractors, we need to be pushing the favorite staffing and guardas of the world to use only Chicago vendors so that that stays in the local economy. We need to do that. And yes, we, there's a lot of paperwork involved and we need Spanish translators. And we should be paying these organizations to do that. We can't keep imposing upon the goodwill and taking it for granted at the end of the day because people are exhausted. Well, you know, I just want to interject here uh, to the question about, you know, what are you doing in terms of putting pressure on the federal government? Um, like, how much access do you guys have to Jan Schakowsky, to Tammy Duckworth, to Dick Durbin? I don't know who the res representative is here, but what is it's your... several. <laughs> what, like... Do you call these people up and say, what, you know, we need, we need these resources, like we need federal resources because the people, you know, Greg Abbott down in Texas, he gets federal resources because it's a border yeah. state. Yeah. Just, I they, mean, they get that's money it. to spend on this. That's exactly it, Maya. Are you I mean, calling Jan? Yeah. I mean, Senator Durbin has toured the ward and our public schools and, and <laughs> frankly, I think that I just would love to see a plan. Mm -hmm. I would love to see a plan, either our, a local plan, a statewide plan, a federal plan. What's a plan? It's the, so the reception, despite the touring of the ward, is it just a lot of vagary? Is it just... There's a, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of unknowns. But the fact is that there are, there are 400,000 people actually waiting uh, at the U.S. border, waiting to come into the U.S. So what is the plan? I know that there are letters out. I know that there are statements out. I know that there are values out, but what are we doing? Because Chicago cannot continue to act like, first of all, a state and also a border state. Nicole, are you hearing something that concrete, satisfying, responsive 
from 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 the federal i i haven't i haven't heard firsthand from any elected representative um about um about plans that are solid about what's coming um oh but there's a someone just sent me a, a news article from the tribune um the White House said there's going to be a program with the Resurrection Project. So it looks like they're starting to do something. I think, you know, ahead of the, uh, of the president coming to the city of Chicago, he was going to be met with a lot of resistance and, and pushback um, if there wasn't some actions taken. I didn't read the whole article yet. So I, let's just say I, there's something which is, which is more than there has been um, for a long time now. So hopefully that's not just for... Uh, that's that's not just because he's coming here, right? I mean, look, we've got the DNC coming next year, um, and and you know, we're we're all grown-ups around here. We see what we see what the 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 Greg Abbott and others are doing, you know, and and unfortunately, it's a political football. Um, we've got a there's not the political will in this country right now to deal with immigration, and that. That can can no longer be kicked down the road. It's just it, it really can't. I, I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to to keep going as a country and, and not just handle um, immigration as an issue. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think some of this has been discussed a little bit already, but I'm curious. While a lot of the solution obviously has to come from the federal level. Um, are there specific things that this mayoral administration in terms of either communication or logistics could be doing better? Uh, you know, are there, I don't want to say easy wins, but things we could start doing tomorrow or next week that would kind of improve the way we're handling this issue? You want to go first? I, I think as individuals, thank you for that question. As individuals, please feel empowered to go to any police station in Chicago and just to check in on our new neighbors. They And there are mutual aid groups out there who have been working so hard, including Sarah right there. You can probably check in with her and others in this room who have been taking care of, of our families. But absolutely what Maya is saying is that where is the support at every level of government? And you are represented by not only older people, but also our governor, our congressional leaders, our U.S. senators. And you have the ability to write op-eds, to call them, to email them, to have your friends call them too. What's the plan? From my perspective, easy wins that the administration could be doing. Let me first say that the administration has an impossible job. It is utterly impossible. And as, as much as I can sit here and do some of my own sort of Monday morning quarterbacking, I, you know, we see it at, at the local level, at the ward level, driving past that. I, I drive past the migrant tents in front of the Ninth District every day. Um, I think for me, what I'd love to see, and I think what many of us have, have asked for, um, is some more engagement. Um, you know, I think you've seen that. I, I think there are currently seven lawsuits that have been filed against the city of Chicago to try to stop uh, migrant shelters uh, in various different stages. Um, I can tell you from my experience, if you allow people to have a seat at the table, be part of the discussion, so that you can identify what these issues are and what people's biggest concerns are, even if they don't get what they want, they're going to feel like their voices were heard. We've talked a lot about people not feeling heard. Um, and I think that that's what continues to be at the crux of so much of it, is that we're not listening. 
right? And, and listening isn't just about letting someone speak. It's about hearing them. And then it's about taking actions that are sort of commensurate to responding to those. I think, so I, I think something that is simple that may be not simple in execution uh, would, would be to really collaborate and engage because Look, between mutual aid volunteers and all of the all of the intel um, and hard work that they've they've gathered um, throughout the last few months, they're they're the experts right now with what's happening at the police districts. And because they forge these relationships, once people leave and they go to shelters, they're coming back. Folks, come, we're I believe we're like the only free shop like this in the entire city. I think there might be one other one on the north side, but we're serving multiple police districts. People who pass through here, they're coming. They're taking the bus to come back here because they need things. So. I think we need to we need to do more together, and I think we need to we need to be open to having more conversations together with people. Yeah, and I would also add to that: if you are not already subscribed to your alderman's email list, do that. Um, and one more thing, in terms of things that you can provide to the, our new arrivals right now, they have nothing, including privacy, including a place to lock their contents of whatever they have up so if it's if it's not a garbage bag that they're walking around with um it's a bag and if they don't have a bag help them provide um to them a, a luggage that they can lock because at, at least it's something that they can um hold that's their own thanks for your questions hi i'm here with a very unpopular opinion I am the daughter of an immigrant mother and a citizen father, and I just want to know when um, providing services and aid literally became our responsibility because my mom came here with nothing but the clothes on her back. And within 12 hours of arriving, she had a job. She went and found a job. She didn't wait for work permits. She didn't wait for housing. And I just want to know, like, how it became our responsibility to aid these people. Because, like, I'm pretty sure a lot of us have come from those households where our parents came here with nothing. And they just worked their asses off, worked two or three jobs, and they made it. And I am the testament of that. And we made it without any government intervention, any assistance. We didn't wait for housing. We didn't wait for donations. We just came here. And I know this because my mom talks about it all the time, how cold she was, how hungry she was, how much in pain she was from the work she did. And I just want to know why, I, and, I, and don't get me wrong, I am sympathetic to these families because like, I, I drive through my neighborhood all the time and I see them, but I just want to know when it became the city of Chicago's responsibility, the citizens' responsibility to pick up the tab for these people's broken dreams because they're not realistic. Our families came here before them with nothing and they worked hard every day for decades. 
I, hey, I really appreciate your courage to ask this question in a public forum. It's not an easy... It's, uh, no. Cool, and I know that I'm, like, look at... It's look, my, okay yeah, to look, take the beat down for it. You, you, you are not alone in your opinion. We, we've already discussed this, right? We, we know that probably half the city feels this way right now. Um, I'm, a, I'm a product of immigrant parents myself. Uh, you know, my, my grandmother used to tell me about, you know, her hot meals, which were like saltine crackers and hot water. We all have those, those stories. To, to get to the heart of your question about when did it become the city of Chicago's job, uh, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like when, I, when I was first appointed, people said, well, you know, you got to ask your boss, Lori. Like, what? I don't say, no, no, wait a second. Lori Lightfoot, no mayor, is my boss. I'm accountable to the people, the residents of my ward, the 53,000 people in the 11th ward. Uh, whether they are citizens or not is how I viewed it, right? Uh, the census has counted you, and we don't know your immigration status. I'm still, I, I don't ask you for your citizenship papers when you come in and ask for a tree trim. Uh, I think it's something that we, I think, as a society aspire to, but it, it was literally a choice that somebody made in leadership, and, and that decision was made. Um, and I don't think anybody could have fathomed um, the situation getting to be where it is. Uh, I will tell you that as, uh, and these individuals are not illegals. <laughs> they entered the country legally with, with uh, their asylum seeking cases. They went through a whole process at the border. Uh, and based on their asylum status, the way that they entered the country, and I can't speak to how our parents did, right? I mean, my parents, my parents' parents, they were sponsored somehow. And then again, community resources, right? You have a community that can support you where you have resources. These individuals now have very limited capability. Yes, many of them are finding work right now. They're hustling, they definitely are. But what they're also putting at risk are their asylum cases because technically they, they cannot work legally right now. They're also putting themselves at risk of being taken advantage of. So it's a real complex issue and I think this is, this is the discourse that we need to be having, right? We need to be able to hear people out we need to be able to explain and answer all of these questions that people have, um, and we haven't we haven't given ourselves the space to do that. I really thank you for your question. Yeah, I I, I will add on to that. I appreciate your question too, and thank you for speaking on behalf of many who who we've heard from in the last um, how many months, especially in City Hall but also on the streets. People want to understand what is happening and why is it our burden to bear. I mean, I do think about not only the immigrants, but those who need a social safety net, including in the 48th Ward, um, immigrants who are growing older, you know, um, or veterans, immigrants who are veterans. And, and we are providing for them because that is that's really who we are as a society that I'm a proud to be a part of that notion that we care for each other like we care for people in our community as though they are extensions of our families the fact that they are coming here from Venezuela is a 
really a, a manifestation of our failure at the federal government on immigration reform. And that is, but, but the fact is that, that it is us at the very local levels that are dealing with the failures of our federal government policies, which is why I'm begging you to figure out who your federal government representative is and really to knock on their doors and say, you know, what are, what are we doing in this moment right now to show up for our new neighbors and also take care of those who have been waiting for, very, for a very long time for services that they, that they deserve and, and need. I mean, I think about too many, too many patients that I've seen in Cook County government at the Cook County Hospital, those who don't have health insurance, and they, you know, it doesn't matter who, who you are and, and, and your race or your immigration status. When you walk into a hospital and you're a caretaker, that is what you do. You take care of the person in front of you, and that's, that's really who we are as a society, too. We are going to take care of each other because, really, it's, it's for the public health of all of us that we are healthy and safe. Okay, we have time for one more question, uh, and then we have to wrap it up. Okay, um, my name is Austin. Uh, thank you all for doing this and making yourselves available to the public in this way. Um, I know it can't be easy. Um, my question is potentially a little naive and potentially not you know, within your purview, but Something that you mentioned, Nicole, was that the commercial district in the loop has, that the buildings have been having trouble retaining tenants. And, you know, if this is an issue of profitability that they have, it seems like there would be an option. I mean, if it, if it were up to me, I would just be interested in the government seizing the property, but I think that, you know, the more diplomatic idea would be to pay a flat rate to the, um, to the building owners and use that available public, that available space that exists to house and shelter these people. I understand why this would not be economically desirable or, you know, or desirable to tourism officials probably in the government. But I'm interested in what the legal and political barriers to, if that's something that's been discussed, if that's something that, if you, you know, is, it some, is there a zoning problem that would have to be resolved? You know, I'm just from your position within these institutions, what is the feasibility or, or you know, of that type of a proposal? Just thinking, trying to think creatively. Hey, it's a great question. Thank you. And it's Austin, right? Yes. Thank you for the question. Um, the, the last administration under Lori Lightfoot had a whole initiative to reimagine the LaSalle Street Corridor, where there are so many vacant, uh, near vacant uh, office buildings. Um, there's a, there, was nine, there, there was $95 million in a TIF to be invested. Um, and those plans have changed a bit uh, with this administration. Uh, you know, we had a budget gap to close, uh, and that was one of the TIFs that was tapped um, to help us close a funding gap. Uh, I, I think the legalities of it all, eventually, if the, if the buildings don't see higher occupancy, um, and the owners can't afford to maintain them, they may just be turning in keys. 
that may just be something that will will happen. Um, you know, obviously there's something called eminent domain. I, I'm not I'm not you know an expert on that at all. I think that the I think that the this administration is is definitely interested. I mean, they haven't shown me at all that they're not interested in thinking creatively about solutions. Uh, but we have an incredibly high vacancy rate right now in the city of Chicago. I was told it could fill 16 Sears Towers. I work on LaSalle, and I see right. there's empty floors. Yep. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I think that we have to think creatively, right? We, we have so many unhoused. That seems like a really easy way, like a quick win, right? If you've got an office building that's, like, literally empty and you can get rid of one of the tenants because they're the last ones in there, you can use an entire building to create a new community, you know? Um, and it and it could be mixed affordable and market rate. I mean, and that's the model that we're going with um, as a city. You know, we're done with putting up high rises that are just you know prisons for poor people. That's not you know we're we're all done with that. And but it takes time to build up mixed and affordable housing, market rate and affordable housing too. But I appreciate the question. Thank you. All right. Well. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming out to our show. Let's give it up for Alderwoman Nicole Lee and Lenny Manah Hoppenworth. <laughs>